0: At Snarky Face, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith Radio. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney. Welcome and thank you for joining us again. Another week here at Snarky Faith. And, and, I don't know about you. But for the longest while, you know, I haven't felt what I would call, hmm, hopeful. And when you hear me say the longest while in my head, I honestly mean that to be, oh yeah, the past couple weeks or the past couple of months have not been the most hopeful in, in America's history. But if I'm honest, if I'm really honest, I have to make a confession. Yes, I, Stuart Talone host a show called Snarky Faith. Oh, where I am snarky and sarcastic and cynical about things of faith and religion. Oh, man. Apparently, I've been messed up for a while. And you guys have been my therapy. No, I'm not saying I'm cured, so don't worry. The show's gonna be here next week. Don't you worry. But to balance out my incessant snarkiness. Actually, we've got a guest on the show today. Um, yes, we have guest Brandon Andrus, who is one of the, he well, not one of the, he is the best-selling author of Beauty and the Wreckage. And the majority of our show will be centered around that because we need to be able to see the beauty in the world around us, even though we are divided and polarized. And frankly, quite often, it's really hard to see beauty in many things nowadays. And so Brandon is here to kind of give us a refresher, talk about his book and talk about how we need to start looking at things differently. So I'm, I'm excited to be able to share that with you guys. But before we get to that, before we get to that, before we get to the warm, the fuzzy, the good, how we can see the beauty in the world, which Brandon depicts quite beautifully, I've still got to get this out of my system. You've got your Christian crazy coming up right now with you. It'll be short, but come on. Come on, I can't do a whole show without having a little bit of sarcasm and cynicism, so here we go.
2: Claude Hemmers, the
0: Lord is my shepherd, he knows know what I want.
1: So this week in the Christian Crazy, we have none other than Pat Robertson, and basically, even though the Christian Crazy this week is shorter, <laughs> Pat's statements will fill it up. Yes, and if anyone hasn't been paying attention to the news, Pat Robertson has this weird notion of being able to try to defend Trump and at the same time defend Saudi Arabian Prince Mohammed bin Salam um, in the what they're I know now saying in the news is the accidental killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah, we all know that's BS. And guess what? Pat's got his own bit of BS. So let's go ahead and hear it now.
2: I just want to cool down the temper of those who are screaming blood for the Saudis. Look, these people are key allies. Our main enemy in the Middle East is Iran, and the Saudis stand up against Iran. And I know that, uh, that uh, Wahhabi faith that they practice is obnoxious, and what they've done in relation to women is obnoxious, and some of their courts are obnoxious. But nevertheless, I don't think on this issue that we need to pull sanctions and get tough. I just think it's a mistake. Behind the scenes, the president can talk to the king and say, look, you've got to cool this thing and get it straightened out. But as he said, we've got an arms deal that everybody wanted a piece of. It's like, what is it, $190 billion? It's huge. And it'll mean a lot of jobs, and it'll be a lot of money coming to our coffers. And uh, it's not something that you want to blow up willy-nilly. So I think the president is playing it right, and he, he should do it. But we shouldn't jump to some uh, wild conclusions. Let's just get those so-and-sos and do it in no way. We we haven't got many friends around the world, and we, we can't offend all of them. Oh,
1: Pat, so many thoughts swirling through my mind. So many things I would love to say to you right now. We could probably teach an ethics course, (laughs) a Christian ethics course, simply just based upon the flaws in the statement that you're making right now, because, of course, so many things you said make my brain turn on fire. Oh, Pat Robertson. Oh, wait, conservative Christians are now interested in the plight of women all of a sudden. Really? Really? Tell about tell me all about how you don't like misogyny conservative christianity Hmm, hmm,
0: hmm.
1: really really not that oh wait uh the fact that we're really just you're there on the christian broadcasting network cbn trying to tell people hey cool it this thing will make us a lot of money oh wait that's so weird that's kind of the mantra of the cbn and the rest of christian broadcasting in general Money over people. Oh, yeah. None of this has to do with Jesus. But instead of harping on that and all of that kind of fun, let's go ahead and get to this interview uh, with Brandon Andrews talking about his book, Beauty in the Wreckage, because actually at this point, anything I'm going to say about Pat Robertson is really not going to be nice and probably will require me to use the censor bar in what we're doing here. So, 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 here we go let's step in to finding some beauty in the wreckage. All right, well, I'm sitting here today with Brandon Andrus, who's an author. He's the author of the new book, Beauty in the Wreckage, Finding Peace in the Age of Outrage. Welcome to the show, Brandon. We're glad to have you on here.
3: Hey, it's great to be here. The Age of Outrage.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Age of Outrage. It does feel like that. And, oh, and for man. those for those that don't know uh Brandon, uh Brandon also um hosts a podcast Outside the Walls and writes for popular blogs. Yeah. You have your own website, right Brandon? You write for your yeah, own Brandon website. Andrews.com, yeah mm-hmm. BrandonAnders.com. yeah com. you've got an MBA um from Indiana Wesleyan University. Whatever that
3: Whatever that means. And
1: BA in psychology. <laughs> What's well, funny because I wanted to ask you about that, too, and, and talking about your journey into writing this book. Yeah. Because, again, you look at your background and you've got, you know, uh, a BA in psychology and an MBA uh, because, again, this is kind of like the logical progression. <laughs> MBA and then a book that is currently what was it like? No, it's number one on Christian death and Christian grief counseling on Amazon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amongst right. other places. So, yeah, yeah so, how, how, Tell me about your journey. How did you get to this place? I have no
3: idea. I mean, <laughs> how, how how do you, how do you even do this? So, um, I mean the elephant in the room is that, so this guy didn't go to Bible college, not seminary. So I, I have none, I have none of the proper credentialing. Um, no, I, you know, I think the big thing is, is that, yeah, I, I have an undergraduate in psych, which gives me a different perspective and then an MBA that I got much later But one of the big things that happened to me in 07 is we kind of stepped out of the church that we were in. And long story short, it ended up being a uh, completely volunteer-led church in downtown Columbus. And so what that meant was that the overhead was really low, and we had tons of money to use for the community. And so through that process, um, some Somehow, some way, I got thrown into the mix of doing the predominance of the teaching. <laughs> and it was interesting because at that point, that was the first time in my life that I had to really decide what I even believed. Because I'd grown up within the church, but I pretty much just believed what I'd been told. Mm-hmm. And so that was really the first time I think 07 was. The beginning of my deconstruction, you know the big popular word and so um, yeah the last 11 years has been not only the deconstruction of my faith but really trying to figure out what I really believe and so a lot of my writing since then has been kind of the process and the journey and then what has birthed out of that
2: mm-hmm.
1: And so what was your what led you to write this book? I mean what was because I know that, that you have a lot of your yeah. journey in the book you've got a lot of yourself in this book, so yeah. Why this book? Why right now?
3: Yeah, this book is is definitely the most personal, um, definitely the book that I've written with the most stories in it. And just, you know, I I really wanted to go heavy on stories because I think that, you know, rather than just telling people and preaching to people, I mean, people want to hear like what you've gone through. And really this book was birthed out of what I've been going through. And I I I had this experience in 2016 And it was a completely ordinary day. I was just sitting in an office and inexplicably, I just had this, I I still can't explain it, just this profound sense of joy. And it just felt like it was washing over me. And I just remember how remarkable it was. And I just took out my phone and I just started writing everything that came to mind at that moment. And so for like three days, I had, I had this crazy, uh, joyful presence and so what came out of that is I, I I thought this is a great, um, trajectory for a book. And then, you know, as I started thinking about it, if you're going to write a book, you have to be super duper passionate and have endurance like crazy. And I thought, you know, I don't know if I could really, I don't know if I have enough perseverance and time and energy and passion on this one particular topic. And so I kind of parked it and then 2017 hit, um, worst year of my life. And it was just, it felt like a pounding, just like I was getting pummeled in a ring. we um, started off with our close friends losing their full term baby, healthy baby boy upon delivery. And then the next month we had to put our 18 year old dog to sleep it was just horrific. The next month, our best friends in our house church, um, their 15 year old son got killed in a freak accident. And so we've still been working through that. And then late uh, last year, uh, my coworker who I've worked with for the last eight years, um, she died of uh, cancer that went to her brain. And she was like 44 and two kids and middle school and a husband. And, and just one thing after another happened. And I, I started remembering that those moments of joy that I had in 2016. Mm. And I was going through this experience of all, all of last year. And I just thought, <clears throat> how do you reconcile these two, two feelings? And then I, I remember these terribly haunting words of Jesus, where he said, I've come to give you life to the fullest. And I thought, man, this is anything but that. And I thought, man, if these, if these words are somehow true, then how do I reconcile this? Like, how is it even possible that with so much tension and agony and crisis and division and stress and anxiety and pain and suffering, is it even possible to have anything close to life to the fullest? And so this book is just birthed out of my um, walking through that,
1: mm. it would for at least me. Uh, this book really f- felt like it came at the right place in the right time. Um, I I got to know who you were and what the book was through my friend uh, Christopher Maloney. Who, uh, yeah. for those who listen on the show, know Christopher Maloney, and uh, yeah. you know Chris, uh, who I got to know through doing the documentary in God We Trump, uh, which. Shameless plug is available on Amazon, uh, on Amazon and iTunes right now.
3: So, right, yeah. yeah.
1: So now, so Chris, stop asking me for your money back. I just did the plug <laughs> here. No, no, I'm joking. But, but in this time, it was, I think I kind of, this came onto my radar. It was around the Kavanaugh hearings oh, uh, yeah. when that was happening. And, and I got the book and I was like, who is this? Because, you know, my, my friend Chris is talking highly of him. I, I read your book and this, this, this stuck out to me. Um, as yeah. I, and as I was reading this, kind of going through a process, you know, a, a, of uh, I guess ideological, um, yeah, despair and destruction. You'd said this. You said uh, political ideology is uh, is pit against political ideology, ethnic group is set against ethnic group. The 1% is put into conflict with the 99%. All Lives Matter is set against Black Lives Matter and vice versa. Anti-gun supporters are against pro-gun supporters. Republicans against Democrats. Democrats against Republicans. One lifestyle rages against another lifestyle. And religious groups are against atheist groups. And then you said this. You said, and the tragedy is that we begin to exist for who we are against. And, yeah. and that hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, and so say more into that because um, yeah. I know what you're saying, but I, I want you to tease that out a little bit.
3: I tell you what, it, it honestly just feels like suffocation, if we're going to be really honest. And and I've got to say before I get into dissecting that, um, you know, I, I really feel like that this book is not a five-step plan at solving a problem or a fill-in-the-blank sermon or um, you know, the five steps to happiness and getting along and singing Kumbaya. I mean, this, honestly, th- this is not that book. Th- this is a book that jumps headfirst into mm. maybe not headfir Yeah. I mean, headfirst right into the, to the shit, honestly. And w- we are all gasping for air, I think, and just trying to figure out like, you know, if there is a different reality, then how do we even begin to see it? Because, you know, all of the narratives, the meta narratives that we, Um, here day in and day out, all it does is continue to pit us against one another. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you you jump on Twitter and you think you're going to get in and just, you know, put out a tweet and you're wrong. (laughs) And all all of a sudden you you realize that there's like, uh, 50 different arguments against 50 different groups and political groups and social groups. And, um, man, i tell you what, it it gets exhausting and I'll tell Mm -hmm. you really, (sighs) To give you an idea, that what I wrote was birthed out of um, a trip that I took last year. I went to southeast Alaska, about seven hours southeast of Anchorage, and we flew a bush plane into the middle of the wilderness, and it dropped us off, and we backpacked for eight days, and it was really the first time in my life um, where we didn't hear anything it was just nature It was running water. It was grizzly bears. It was just us with each other. No, no cars, no internet, no phone, just nothing. And I felt like that I could just breathe again Hmm. because everything that we were going through at the time. And and honestly, we forget two weeks after one crisis, right? So (laughs) there's no way, there's no way I could remember like last year, what we were going through, but I'm sure it had something to do with the president and everything else. Um, but I remember going into that and just walking out and having spent eight days in the wilderness. And I turned on my phone reluctantly and one, one of my good friends said, I recommend that you just turn around and walk right back where you came from because <laughs> <laughs> you, you are not ready for this. And you know, the, the truth of it is is that the, the solution is not escaping it. Okay. I mean, I I just want to be really honest. We're, we're in this And and I think to a large degree, we have set ourselves up in such a way, whether these are um, genuine forces that have legitimate good in mind or forces that are completely playing us against one another. And I don't really care either way it's happening, Mm -hmm. but I really think that um, we've bought into the meta narrative of being against so many people that we've lost just essential humanity, like a really fundamental humanity. And we know everything that we're against. We know that we're against the label before we even know anything about the person. And I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't even need to spiritualize that to make that a huge point to say at a very basic human level, we've lost humanity Yeah, and we're, we're, and we're continuing to lose it. Now I could make a great spiritual argument for it, but you know, I, I didn't write this in the book, but I will tell you one of the most captivating, um, Really really poignant moments that I had I was watching a Morgan Spurlock show, and he had taken like the uh, what what 's the thirty day fast food super super size, super size me yeah so they had taken that and they made it a, a show where they took two different people from two different walks of life, two different <gasps> ideological um, ends of the spectrum, and they put those people together for thirty days together mm-hmm. and I remember this one one episode in particular. They had a guy that worked the, uh, as a border agent between U.S. and Mexico, and then they had an illegal um, immigrant who was in our country, mm. and they put them together for 30 days. Mm. And there was something remarkable that began to happen is that all the ways that they viewed each other prior to them living together for that period of time began to slowly fade away mm. as they ate with one another. As they talked and heard each other's stories to find out where they came, you know, how did you arrive at this place in your life? And, you know, for me to see people who were so ardent in their position at the very beginning of the episode, embracing one another and crying and holding one another at the end to me was remarkable. But not only that, they both changed their positions Hmm. a little bit. Actually, the border agent began working on behalf of Im- illegal immigrants in our country because of the experience of hearing her story, where she came from, about her family. And I, I'm not telling people to watch that show, <laughs> even though I think it would be very enlightening. Mm-hmm. I think my, my basic point is, is that we have created so many divisions and classifications and labels, and we've we've operated within those systems and hierarchies to such a degree that – we can't even share a table with one another. Yeah. We we have alienated the other so much that we don't even know their names, where they came from, why they believe what they believe. We've we've automatically dismissed them and said, "You are bad. You are evil. You are against," without even giving a person the opportunity to talk or share. Mm.
1: And what ends up happening in those situations, too, and, and I, you're, you're absolutely right about this. Uh, if anyone that has social media um, in any capacity, uh, you know, I think, you know, it sees this trend going on. But um, one of the things that, that I've even noticed over the last few years is that when you begin to define yourself based upon what you're not, you're never defining yourself based upon what you are. And, right. um, and that ends up being a very slippery slope um in people's lives when you do that because then you just become antagonistic in all that you do and you you're not able to kind of stand back and breathe
3: um yeah absolutely
1: and, and be able to respond appropriately in situations
3: yeah and i i also think that um yeah i mean th- that point is so Valid right now, uh, we we kind of operate at each other's throats so much that we don't even have the capacity to step back and breathe. It, it almost feels like that everything is at stake all the time. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And, and and maybe we've been set up to believe that. And and I guess the one, one thing that I want to make sure that I say is that I'm not suggesting suggesting that people necessarily change their. Uh, minds about what they believe, Mm -hmm. because I think that it's very important for each of us to have convictions and to stand for what's right. Um, You know, one of the topics that I developed throughout the book is talking about shalom. And in this word shalom, I could go in and tell you how I arrived at it. But, Mm -hmm. you know, let's just cut to it. Um, This idea of shalom is finding this place of relational oneness with God within ourselves, where we can find that peace, that wholeness, completeness and harmony with God. But then it becomes something that works its way out in our relationships and then in the broader, broader community. Now. So one of the things that I always say about it is that Shalom is not passive. You know, a lot of people, again, would think that, you know, it, it, if if we are going to start working through all of these divisions and animosities and hatreds that are in our country, and that we would somehow have to relinquish, one, what we believe, which we don't, um, or two, capitulate or give in to the other side, which that's not what we're suggesting, I would suggest that it's a presence of being that can go out into the world and push Shalom outward mm. into relationships where there's something that is – transcendent that we're experiencing that can actually see the the value of the human being behind it where we are actually working again not giving up what we believe but actually seeing the human behind it and working towards a greater good
1: well for you um and speaking about shalom and (coughs) and i know like it's major themes in, in your book that you know the idea that shalom leads to um deeper a deeper life of transformation um so how how has Shalom experiencing this in these ways?
3: How has that transformed you? Uh, yeah, it's not overnight uh <laughs> it's not it's not the snap of a finger mm-hmm. um, you know i I think one of the things that i have learned over time is how um it's really changed how I see and how I uh relate to the world and I think. You know, there there's this one moment I use a lot of stories, like I said, but there was this one moment um, I was sitting on the couch and I I suffer from chronic body pain. And the last couple of months have really been some of the worst of my life. But this was probably about a decade ago. And I was sitting on the couch after a long day at work. And my two girls were uh, seven and four at the time, our dogs running around like crazy. They're playing and just screaming and grating on my nerves. My wife's in the kitchen and it was the most chaotic, just horrible experience from the outside looking in. Like I just was like, Oh, I feel bad. And it's just chaos. And I remember putting my head back on the couch and there was just this sense of like profound appreciation of saying, I want to be here right now. And I I want to, you know, even in the chaos of the moment, I want to see what beauty that is in this Mm -hmm. and tears just ran down my face. And it was kind of, I don't know if you've ever read the short story, our town by Thornton Wilder, Mm -hmm. but um, it's kind of this, this short, this short story. And one of the main characters dies, and she's looking back on even the small things of her life that she took for granted. And I just, rem- I, I just kind of thought of that moment where it's like all these small little things that we take for granted each day. My eyes were now opening to a greater beauty that was there. There, there was this other time when my um, one of my daughter. Well, it, I, i'm always the butt of all the stories um, i'm the one i'm the one learning from the kids um mm-hmm. you know it, it's never me uh, having this moment of enlightenment enlightenment it's always my kids teaching me but my daughter was looking out the window and she saw the dandelions in the yard and i view dandelions as a major threat to my existence i mean i am just I was counting down the days to when I could just go out and nuke those things. (laughs) And, um, my daughter looks out the window and she's like, those are the most beautiful flowers that I've ever seen. And I was like, Oh my gosh. You know, and these, these are very, um, sweet stories, Mm -hmm. but I think that they prove a profound point. At least for me, they did because a lot of ways that I grew up, um, to see my yard as something that needed to be manicured where all weeds needed to be killed. That was the filter through which I viewed everything. And I never even contemplated that there was another way of seeing it. And my daughter seeing it as something beautiful just hit me to hit me to the core of saying, man, a lot of the ways that we grow up and our influences that we have and the people that we surround ourselves shape the lenses through which we see the world. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize at the time, like how, deeply I had been ingrained into the system to see those things as a threat, as a nuisance weed, where there could be real beauty behind it. And so a lot of it, you know, Jesus always used the phrase for those who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And I think that those are profound words because, again, we can we can continue to react in how we see with these distorted lenses and just continue to feed into that like that there's no other way. But, I, but what I would suggest is that there is actually um a deeper level of seeing that can happen and it, i think that it begins with those who um you know the bible never talks about the five steps to seeing the world differently it always talks about the treasure that's hidden in the field that you have to go searching for yourself so i think it's something that's not handed to you as much as you discover it
1: and and one one of the themes too that uh, along with what you're saying about changing perspective um and seeing things differently <laughs> um and and I loved how you tied that together is that that that's also like intrinsically connected to community. Yep. You know, this idea of being able to oh, I have perspective on my own. Uh it is only mine. I have only gained perspective through the power of my mind. You know, it right. doesn't work that way. It doesn't no, no, work no, that no, way. No. Um, you know, because that that need of community, it, you know, it's one of those ways that we are able to kind of see our own reflections. Um, and other people see our own greatness, uh, or see our own <laughs> terribleness. Usually, it's the latter, um, uh, in the face of other people. But yeah, talk about that because you're mentioning this idea of transformation, about perspective, about shalom, <clears throat> and and how how yeah how how important
3: is community in this equation? Man, I I mean, it's it's essential. It is so essential. But I I will say. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that I'm still going through right now in the context of community. And you, you're right. You have to have people that surround you who are intimately connected to you, who know you deeply, who are completely invested in your growth and how you, and how you're growing and how you're seeing and how you are relating to other people in the world. I mean, it's essential, but at the same time, I mean, there, there still comes an individual responsibility to that because, you know, I, I, I list this one example where, and I could, t- I could tell you so many more, but, uh, there was this one time with my job that I had completely invested myself in getting this particular job within my company. And after like a three month process, like eight interviews, I mean, it was just the most grueling thing ever. Um, I didn't get it, and I I don't throw myself into too many things 110%, but with that, I did, and I knew that I had the job secured and didn't get it, and I'll tell you that um, I became a really nasty person. I, I, I became very jaded and cynical. Um, a lot of the ways that I would talk, um, just very demeaning and, and hateful, and it, it became kind of like this infection that I had within me, and there's a guy that I was, that I'm incredibly close to and we're, we're talking one day and he said, now I mean, think think about this. He said, you know what? In all the areas of your life, you are one of the most peaceful guys that I know. But he said at work, you're horrible. And I was like, ah, we've got to have people in our lives that can talk to us like that, you know? And 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 there were so many blind spots that I had at that moment where I couldn't see it. You know, I was living kind of this reality of the false self that I had kind of constituted and created that I was like operating out of. And all this toxicity that I was feeling internally was toxic and it was infectious. And guess what it was doing? It was going out to other people in my conversations. And I had somebody close enough to me to call me out on it and to say, you know, you are a toxic dude here at work. And I think it really took that moment for me to see it. But honestly, man, I, I in the context of community, um, you got to have people around you that love you deeply and that really care about you, but also are willing to tell you the truth too.
1: No, those are those important conversations that, that I don't know that we always invite, even though we probably should. No, we, invite don't. Them. <laughs> we
3: don't at all.
1: <laughs> no. uh, but they're very painful, but they're also very life-giving, I think, if, if, we, if we are open to it. Because I think oftentimes we can become hard to those conversations and deflect.
0: No, um, we do.
3: But, Self-justification and self-preservation oh, yeah. and like everything that you can – we – there's nothing more painful than opening yourself up and being vulnerable to say, here I am. Tell me about myself. <laughs> Yikes. I mean, but – so why would we do that? Why, why would we invite that level of vulnerability and honesty about ourselves? I don't know. <laughs> no, no. It, actually, I do know. You know, I think that, um, I think that there's something that begins to happen. There's a level of freedom that begins to happen because whenever I was living in that really toxic, painful place, I was infecting other people. Mm-hmm. And whenever he opened that place up and he's like, dude, this, this, this area needs cleaned deeply. Mm-hmm there was something that started happening that began to feel like a a freeing, a liberation. There was something that felt cleansing. And all of a sudden it started working its way out, not in just how I related to people, but how I began to see other people as well and relate to my own family. So, you know, we can dismiss these things like, well, why would I want to go through the the headache and the heartache of having somebody like tell me the truth about myself? But I think just for our, our own sanity, Just for our own, you know, um, we we desperately need it. Mm -hmm.
1: No, because you're right. I I think that ultimately, like, there, I think we all have those times where we would like to remain in our own self delusion, uh, because that can be a quite comfortable place. But, but the good things in life, I think, the things that matter in life, you know, even like how you'd mentioned earlier about going on an eight day, uh, being backpacking for eight days. I mean, that's that. Those are hard journeys. You know, those yeah. are hard things, but they're also rewarding um, because you were seeing things that you wouldn't have normally seen. You're experiencing things you wouldn't have normally experienced. And it's all because you put yourself in that place. Um, and in a certain sense of vulnerability as well, too. I mean, that's that is the nature of backpacking. There is a nature of vulnerability to it, to yeah, the somewhere. elements, to nature, to whatever goes wrong, because something always does um, at <laughs> some point in it. And um, no, 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 I, I, I do. And I, I do. I think you're right about that. And in speaking kind of how we've talked about like the individual and then kind of moving to larger, how community is good for this. Um, like in your perspective too, like how, how is experiencing or how does experiencing Shalom transform communities and like the world around us as
3: well too? Yeah. Um, that's the million dollar question, right? (laughs) Um, you you know, I think maybe one of the greater metaphors, again, not in the book, I kind of thought about it after the fact is that whenever you're fighting a forest fire, um, if you're carrying just fire into it, you know, it's like, you're not really doing much to, um, remedy it. You're, you're actually probably a contributor to it. And Mm -hmm. so I think in a lot of ways, um, some of the larger issues that we're facing nowadays, um, it it almost seems like that our mindset becomes, if we can, um, even throw more fire into it, that somehow that that's going to fix the problem. And, and I'm not seeing that, um, you know, whenever you look at Twitter every day or you look at, uh, Facebook every day, and it's just people being hostile and verbally aggressive or anti this and anti that, Mm -hmm. um, I I don't see a lot of people changing their minds that way. Honestly, I I see a lot of defensiveness and posturing and people putting up their, their, uh, metaphorical dukes, you know, to fight it out. And it it becomes this kind of cyclical uh, pattern that we've got going on. It's almost like, um, uh, uh, you know, you, you, hit me, I'll hit you back. You hit me, I'll hit you back. And it's like this lie that we've bought into that somehow if we hit hard enough, then maybe it'll just stop. And, The sad thing is, is it never stops. You know, we just we keep bringing more ammunition to it. And so whenever we start thinking about um, Shalom and something that we actually begin to experience ourselves, there's a transformation that can happen where we become um, uh, complete and whole, where we, we begin to experience a harmony that we take into our relationships with others. And so, you know, to me, it really begins at a person to person level. I think that whenever we talk about shalom being an active presence in the world, it's not sitting passively by and just letting. um, You know, if you let's be really um, blunt about it, I mean, there are groups of people who are, in my mind, um, actively facing some of the larger threats that we face in our country by being peace, by being um, shalom, going out into the situations where they're. taking their guns and they're beating them into plowshares where they're, you know, uh, facing um, capital punishment and, and fighting for those people um, who are on death row. And so, you know, whenever we take Shalom, we're not taking more fire to fight fire. We're actually Mm -hmm. taking something that can uh, change the, the entire course of humanity. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for me, it's, it's something so much bigger. It's something where, you know, it, what, what's the uh, quote uh, become the piece that you want to see in the world, and I think that that's just largely it.
1: Mm. Well, taking <clears throat> taking shalom then from you like that was kind of the like the macro view of things, and then now like moving kind of into the micro view of things. You know, we get and you you kind of you kind of dance around some of these topics too in the book that the idea that you know that we're um, that we're human <clears throat> beings and we're not human doings. Um, but we continue to live in a culture that tells us that we're not enough, that we that rest is bad, because if we rest, that means we're missing out on something that we we always need to be more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from from your perspectives in life, too, and, and through your experiences and what you've been through, like how how do we slow down? Because I know there's a lot of people listening, you know, to this that, that we all have this like, it's, you know, the answer is more is more. That's all we Mm -hmm. know. It's just always more. It's always more. It's always more. And I mean, from what you can see in this, I mean, part of Shalom has this idea of just inner peace, this idea of rest. Um, And we live in a world that is restless. Mm -hmm. Um, So for people listening here, like what, how do we slow down?
3: Man, there's just so much. Um, uh, Yeah, I mean, I think at a very basic level, we kind of... um, I mean, if we're really talking practical, I mean, we exist with our phones right next to us all the time waiting for the notifications. And I think everybody knows that, but I don't think that we're really willing to acknowledge the level of addiction that we have to our technology. And so, you know, I've just noticed myself, like just the other day, I was uh, getting in my car and I immediately reach over to grab my phone And I happened to look out the window and I see like this low fog, the sunrise coming up. And I was just like, Oh man, I just put down my phone and I just looked at it. I was waiting for somebody to pick me up the other day and I was outside and I had my phone in my hand and started going through the whole motion and thought, you know what? I just, I I, I got down on the sidewalk and I just lied down and just started looking at the sky and just watched the bugs fly by. And, you know, I, there was this moment that I had in Alaska no, I'm sorry, in the Grand Canyon and we were backpacking and it was kind of the last day. We had this huge ascent coming up and it was really early in the morning and there was like one tree before we hit this huge mesa. And so it was like the only place where there was shade. So we kind of ducked under it. And while we were under the tree, one of the guys said, Hey, do you have Any music, which when we're backpacking, we just kind of leave music and everything behind. Mm -hmm. And I I just happened to look and there was one song on my phone and it was Passing Afternoon by Iron and Wine. And we turned it on and we just closed our eyes and just sat there and listened. And it's almost like that because I had not heard music for five days, that there was this new, deeper level of appreciation. I could hear every note, every harmony, every melody, every... Everything that I had taken for granted, you know, because we we are such a consumer consumption based society. Like we know that we do that with food and we know that we throw away a lot of things. But I don't think that we realize the level to we, that we do it with even our music, you know, where it's at our disposal so much. It's just like, well, I'm going to listen to this and listen to this and listen to this. And we just dis- listen and discard, listen and discard. Mm-hmm. And it was in that moment where I just thought, I don't know the last time that I've just slowed down enough to just appreciate the depth of something like that. And it kind of reminded me of another time when, um, I would fast and, you know, kind of fast from food as just as more of a spiritual discipline. But one of the funny things that I found out whenever I would fast is that whenever I would be reintroduced Mm. to food, that there was an explosion of flavors Mm. of, of, of the the way you smell it, the way the textures and maybe I'm over dramatizing it, but I'm telling you it felt like I had never tasted food before in my life. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of, you know, whenever we talk about Shalom, it's it's not just a sense of like being, I think it's just a level of slowing down and appreciating Mm -hmm. of removing yourselves at times just to find solitude and peace and just breathe for the, even if it is for the first time, um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't uncommon for Jesus to get away from all of the chaos and the confusion and the people and their relationships just to go duck out. I mean, were there more people to heal? Were there more social issues to face? Were there more people that needed to hear his words? Absolutely. But what we find is Jesus ducking away and finding that place where he could just breathe again.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, being able to have that and, and especially when we're like, again, part of the, the name of your book is the age of outrage and um, being able to speak into to the fact of what is good news today. And when we think of like the realm of Christendom, um, the term good news uh, oh, oftentimes yeah. is not good news for people. It's good news for some and bad news for others. Um, and I'm not looking to get into that, too. But for for right now, Brandon, like what is good news to you? Yeah, what is good news in your life?
3: <laughs> well, I mean, what we've made it, um, mm-hmm. if Christianity's done any disservice and there's many disservices, but one has been a, com- a complete relinquishment, uh, re- is that right? relinquishing of the <laughs> present for the future. And we've made the entire faith about something that we will work to attain or get a ticket to one day in the future while we neglect everything presently. And, you know, if there is good news, then to me it has to be fully present. And I think that that's the entire point of the book is that good news not only begins to work in our lives to liberate us from Um, Those things that we are enslaved by, but I think that it reinstitutes this kind of relational oneness that we can have with other people where there's a deeper level of humanness, of humanity, of the way that we see each other the way that we want to know each other deeper, uh, more thoroughly as a human being to hear each other's stories. And then I think it begin the good, the good news has to go beyond that where people can taste and see it for themselves. And so instead of making it, it's funny because my daughter, she goes to Purdue and um, she texted me the other day and she said, there's a bunch of Christians in the courtyard in this public space and they're yelling at everybody telling us that we're going to hell. Mm-hmm she's like, wow, that's, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty rough. She's like, why would anybody want to stop and hear that or be a part of it? Mm-hmm. But you know, we've largely not we, but I mean, there are many Christians who've largely made that the case of like the entire point of your life is this grand choice between going to heaven or going to hell. Mm-hmm. And it may, maybe I could just take that and say. Well, if we've done anything poorly, it's that we haven't recognized the heaven and the hell that's here presently, and we've, we haven't done anything about it. And I think that that really – you know, I mentioned this in one part where I talk about God's forgiveness is for all people for all time. It's past tense. It's a done deal. You know, it's already there. The rest of the scripture goes on to say that a Christian is a minister of reconciliation and it's kind of funny because we've kind of put ourselves in a position of being ministers of forgiveness which yeah. that, that that's not what it says again that's past tense done deal reconciliation is just simply going forth to be reconciled or to find that wholeness completeness and harmony and shalom with god it's it's that simple and and but you know it's it's not an intellectual exercise it's not convincing someone into it it's simply saying if there is a, a, a way of life to be, if Jesus said that, I came to give you life and life to the fullest, if there is something presently that we can taste, that we can take part in, that we can share with one another, that we can break bread at a table and take part in, that we can extend outward to the world to heal and remedy some of these larger, these large, these large issues that we face, it has to be something that we embody and that we, realize presently it's not a future distant thing exclusively I put that out there not exclusively you know I, I hope for a time where there's um, you know peace realized where there's love that's been fully realized I, I have hope for all of that but in the meantime let's bring it here presently that's that's good news that's good news for people who are um, experiencing the pain right now those are that's good news for people who are suffering and who've lost loved ones, that's good news for people who, you know, have questions every day and doubts about their relationships, about their moms, their dads, you know, the loved ones who suffer from stage four cancer, people who are, you know, losing loved ones. There, there is something presently that we can embody and take part in and share with one another that surpasses all understanding. No. To me, that's good news.
1: No, that is. that is <laughs> that. No, that I mean, I think that that is that's the good news that we want to hear. And even looping back into what we talked about at the, you know, at the beginning of this interview, this idea of being for something versus being against something. And and, and I think being able to step into those places allows you to to do something in the positive. Absolutely. Um, and I, you know, it, it allows progress. It allows moving forward. It's a faith that good news literally means good news here now.
3: Uh, that's right. You know, it's fully, it's fully invitational. It's always invitational. It's Mm. always welcoming. It's always asking people to join you at the table. Yeah. And,
1: and, and I love that. And, and, and I love even like this, the table metaphors I think that you talk through in the book and about how important that is. Um, and about how important others are, especially others being around them that are not like us, um, about the fact that we need to learn to listen and we're in a time, Mm. um, where I think listening and dialogue have, in many ways, feel like they have died. Um, <laughs> I don't think that's no, possible, I mean, it, but,
3: <laughs> no, but it feels I, like that. No, it absolutely feels like that. And, you know, honestly, I, I don't know. I mean, I keep on thinking about, um, you know, you, you, you write a book, you put a book out, and you're like, do people, can people even take this to heart? Can mm-hmm. Can people even, like, you know, I, I, I tell people since I've written it, like, read it and let it sit. Like, don't don't read it in one sitting. I, it, it can be a really fast read. You can fly right through it and, and throw it to the side. But, you know, the one thing that I ask people is just, like, read it and meditate on it. There's reflection questions at the end of every chapter, like, you know, really getting us to think about where we are in this and how we are relating to other people and how we see other people. And, you know, in what, in what ways are we allowing our culture to make us reactionary? In what ways are we contributing to the problem? In what ways? So it really, it it, it involves a lot of introspection. Mm -hmm. It's very contemplative in the sense of, you know, taking these ideas, these thoughts, and just really letting them simmer, and, and settle and become a part of who we are.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, now that we've 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 gone through talking about the book, I want to ask you just a really honest question. Um, all of this fluffy feel good stuff that we've talked. No, I'm yeah, joking. Yeah, yeah. I'm joking. Um, so tell me the truth, and I'll yeah. make sure I edit this out because, of course, I will. Um, you really just wrote this book because you wanted to. One up Joel Osteen is that the tr- on Amazon like you that was the goal that was like a long time life goal. How do I unseat yeah. his throne, so to speak? No, no I'm yeah, joking. I
3: mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, I'll tell you the great thing about that though is that I I have outpaced old Joel Osteen uh, with with this book, and it may it may have to do with the fact that the Kindle version is ninety nine cents. But hey, I mean, who's uh, making excuses? But I, I will tell you one thing about that. I really feel like that people are ready for just honest conversation. And I really feel like that people are tired of the superficiality and just the feel good, fill in the blank, easy answers, or your five ways to happiness. And I really feel like that we're at a place where people want your heart. People want to hear, you know, vulnerability. And I even say it in the book that this book, will will may make you ask more questions than you have answers for and and truly, like while I was writing it, I thought, I don't have all of the answers here and and I think that that's okay, but I think that people really are hungry for some substance right now. and you know, we keep looking to these people that and people 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 keep buying it. um but but I think that there's like this undercurrent in our country of people that are, Realizing that we've got to change the trajectory somehow, yeah, and that we, since we are at each other's throats, and I don't think they want to run to the Joel Osteen's of the world, and they're looking for somebody just to be honest and call call it as it is, who doesn't have a side. I mean, and that's really. One of the things that people will know at this is that I really just don't have a side in, in the battle. Um, more than anything, I want to figure out how we can t- tap into something that transcends the divisions, the hierarchies, the uh, the you know classifications, the labels, where we can find a new humanity together.
1: And and you do it in a beautiful way. Um, and I don't always say this. Oh, on the, I, I don't always say this on the air. <clears throat> but I'll be honest for those. This is kind of a look like looking behind the scenes. Um, so here's a secret listeners out there. I don't have authors on here um, that I haven't read their books and I don't appreciate their books. So having someone oh, on here too, cause cause I know there's other shows that'll have any, any just have any author on there just to be able to fill time. But I don't do that because I don't see the point in it. And, and I, I loved your book. Um, I loved Beauty in the Wreckage. And it spoke to me. And I think that it can speak to a lot of other folks out there. Um, so, Brandon, how, how do people find the book? how do people find you yeah. all that good stuff, all the good stalkery questions.
3: Um. <laughs> well, first off, I appreciate all that you said. I mean, it, it means a lot and I can tell you that the book is more articulate than I've been on here uh, today. So th- that being said, uh, the way that people can find it is a few different ways. You can go to beauty and that'll take you where you can watch the promo video where you can get sample chapters and it will direct you to everywhere online where you can pick up the book. Also, you can go to com. That's just my blog. And then lastly, Outside the Walls Podcast. I think that uh one of the newer episodes is the introduction to the book. So you can listen to that there. So yeah, there's a few different ways to access it. The the big thing is is that just just go buy the book. It's on Amazon. It's 99 cents for Kindle, and I think it's less than 10 bucks right now on sale.
1: And for ninety nine cents, you can make sure that Joel Biden <laughs> does not continue on his uh, throne of money and lies. Um, well, I mean, if we're, we're going to do that.
3: For, sorry, keep going. I mean, we're going to do it for a real noble <laughs> reason. Let's just do it. You know, <laughs> no, I'm joking. If, if for no other reason, let's do it because of that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, Brandon, thanks. Thank you so much for your time today. The book "Beauty and the wreckage: Finding peace in the age of outrage" um, is on Amazon right now. Uh, Go out, buy it, read it, um, yeah, and tell
3: other people about it. Yeah, you know that's really the last thing is that Joel Osteen has his uh, flock of millions, and I have nobody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I have the listeners, I have smaller communities on social social media, and then in my real life, but uh, I don't have the tens of thousands of people at a church. Um, so, if people find value in it, and if they resonate with the message in it, if they would just share it with other people, that would be huge. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, thank you so much, Brandon.
3: Awesome. Thank you.
1: Well, that is it for this week. My deep thanks and appreciation to Brandon for being on the show. And if you're interested, go over to Amazon. Check out his book, Beauty in the Wreckage, because hopefully we'll be able to do that. We'll be able to find beauty in the wreckage that we're living in right now. But as I end this broadcast, just a reminder that you can catch this show and Lust shows and every other show that we've done. On podcast. So go over to snarkyfaith.com. It's just that easy. www.snarkyfaith.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Just look up Snarky Faith because we're the only ones out there. And as I send you off this week, I send you off in grace and peace and snark. And in the words of Brandon Andrus, I also send you out to notice the beauty that is around us, to notice that even though it's easy to see things that are messed up in this world, there's always beauty out there for you to capture, for you to get perspective from, for you to begin to look at the world in a different way. So that's all I've got this week, and I am out of here. Catch you guys again next week.
0: WCOM is listener-supported community radio, and Snarky Faith is only possible through our sponsors. Lumen, a spiritual community of seekers, sojourners, question-askers, doubters, and skeptics, is a collective of fellow travelers that embrace the truth that all of life is sacred, hope is real, and tomorrow can be a better day than today. All are welcome. You can find more information at www.lumencommunities.com.